We're going to continue in Second uh, Corinthians uh, today, but in light of this being Palm Sunday and uh, preparing for our Easter celebration next Sunday, I decided to step outside of the, the series just slightly, and uh, we're going to focus on just one verse in Second Corinthians chapter 13, and then we'll go back uh, the week after Easter and, and pick up on our series. But uh, open up Second Corinthians 13, uh, verse 4 says this, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Father God, again, we just thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and that you are here in this midst. God, we know you're with us at all times, but in a special way. Your presence is with us when we gather together to pray together, to study together, to worship together, to lift your name on high. We just ask that your spirit be free to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I, I don't know about you, but when I I read that verse, it always throws me for just a little bit of a loop. You know, it says, Jesus was crucified because of weakness. And and there's, you know, just two thoughts uh, that make that verse, uh, for me, a little hard to grasp. And the first is that phrase, because of, uh, which signifies purpose or planning or reason. And, And then the idea that Jesus is equated with weakness. And that word because of, you know, that usually makes us think of either the immediate reason for something, it happened because of this, or the purpose behind it, it happened, you know, because of these things. And we know that the immediate reason for the crucifixion was because of the jealousy and the hatred and the fear of the Jewish religious leaders towards Jesus. Uh, they began clashing with him very early in his ministry. The Bible tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old uh, when he began his public ministry, and it lasted for about uh, three years. And he spent the first 30 years of his life uh, living a very normal life, learning and working in the family trade. Uh, Nothing remarkable stood out during those early years except for you know one incident the bible tells us about when he was 12 years old remember the jewish families were required to to make a pilgrimage to jerusalem once a year uh, to celebrate the feast of the passover together and and joseph and mary being a devout family they made sure and, and did that every year and and the time when jesus was 12 years old their family again they did that but this particular time uh Jesus decided to stay behind after the Passover was over. Um, The family came with a large caravan of of friends and relatives from their home city, and they headed on out, and mom and dad just assumed that Jesus was with, you know, friends, family, somewhere back in the caravan, and they got to supper that night and began searching for him, and he was nowhere uh, to be seen. And um, he had stayed back in the temple and uh, uh, he was amazing. The religious, religious leaders there, according to Luke's gospel, said all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And, and so, you know, when a 12-year-old is amazing 
the adults who have trained in Scripture with his answers. That's, that's fairly remarkable. But the big remarkable thing about this incident is him not telling his parents, right? And, and uh, you know, if you've ever lost your kid in Walmart, you know what it's like, uh, how frantic you feel when, when you've lost... Uh, uh, possession of your child, and so they're frantically searching all over Jerusalem for him, finally find him in the temple, whereupon Mary did what moms are supposed to do, and promptly chastised him, and Jesus responded back very calmly. He said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So, you know, now uh, a bit of uh, foreshadowing there of what his life was going to be like, but other than that, that's really the only incident in those first 30 years of Jesus' life that stands out. Uh, the only thing that was remarkable about those first 30 years is that nothing remarkable happened, right? It was normal. He, he, he grew up like a normal kid. He went to school. He did his chores. He learned uh, a trade uh, from his father, worked as a carpenter or possibly a stonemason. Um, you know, we, we've heard carpenter all our life. But, but we, we don't know that for sure. About a hundred, the, the Greek word literally means builder uh, uh, or craftsman. And, uh, and uh, about a hundred years after uh, Jesus uh, uh, died and, and, and rose again and, and left the earth, uh, some guy was writing about him and said that he was a carpenter and made um, yokes for oxen and, and things like that. And, and that's stuck ever since. But if you've been to Galilee, uh, you'll notice there's a distinct lack of trees in that area, and, and everything was made from stones. Now, there was a little bit of wood, so they did make wooden oak yokes for the oxen and stuff like that. Uh, but, but like even the, ch- the benches in the synagogue were all made of stone. Uh, so you guys can be thankful this morning. You got, you got uh, <coughs> nicer chairs. Uh, it, it, so it's, it's very possible that Jesus was a stonemason, um, but... It really doesn't matter, right? Uh, What we know is he worked in the family business until 30 years old when he began his real work and ministry of of preaching and teaching around all the small villages around Galilee. And he had a very simple message. It simply said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, And you wouldn't think a simple message like that would raise the ire of the religious leaders of, of Israel, but it did. And, and one of the main reasons it did was because he wasn't trained by them. He wasn't approved by them. And they didn't like this guy who wasn't under them going out and preaching and teaching uh, these messages and especially the fact that he was popular. People were liking him and following him. So that was a problem to start with. But what, what really was a problem was they wanted Jesus to toe the line and preach and teach the things that they taught, which was all their rules and regulations. And uh, Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he would challenge them on the unbiblicalness and, and the unlovingness uh, of, of most of their rules. And that's what really made them mad. So j- just one example. Well, there was one time when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. A hand, you know, we don't know what dried up, but the hand was dried up and withered. He couldn't use it. That would be a huge detriment to survival in, in that time era. And, and so he healed this man, which should have been a wonderful thing. But he healed him on the Sabbath day. And the 
Pharisees and religious leaders consider healing to be doctoring, and doctoring is working, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. So they were all mad at Jesus and called him out uh, for that and uh, were trying to say that he was bad. So Jesus, rather than kowtowing to them, uh, said that they were bad for being such hypocritical numbskulls which, I mean, that's kind of a loose paraphrase, but that's basically what he said uh, to them. And Jesus, uh, I mean, their response then to, to Jesus calling them out was this, uh, Matthew twelve fourteen. it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And see, this was fairly early in his ministry. He's, 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 doing this, and there was already this animosity. And towards the end of that three years, that animosity in their hearts had done nothing but grow stronger. Uh, Shortly before the triumphal entry, Jesus performed the most spectacular uh, of all his miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead, even though Lazarus had been in the grave for three days already. So how could anyone, after witnessing that and seeing that, not believe that Jesus was from God. And and yet there were many that did not. Some of the ones who had witnessed that, it says, immediately rushed off to tell the Pharisees and the chief priests all about it. And this was the religious leaders' reactions to that. They got together again and it says, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So notice, they weren't the least bit concerned about whether or not Jesus might really be who he said he was. Who he said he was. Uh, they didn't care. They were only afraid that they would lose their position, their status, their wealth in, in the nation. So what did they decide to do? Well, the passage goes on. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Jesus had to die. That was their plan. And that's exactly what they did and carried out. That was the immediate reason behind the crucifixion of Jesus. The religious leaders wanted him out of the way, and so they did what it took to get him out of the way. And they crucified him because of the religious leader's plan. But that phrase, because of, can also make us think about the purpose behind an event. And the purpose behind it had nothing to do with the religious leader's plan to try to get him out of their way for what they wanted, right? The true purpose was enunciated by Peter in in his very first sermon that he preached after the death and resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And in there he said, this man, referring to Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So see, jealous Pharisees may have been the instigators of what was going on, but they were unwittingly fulfilling the plan and the purpose of God. So what was God's plan behind all of this? Well, Jesus actually spelled it out in one very simple statement. He said, For the Son of Man has come to seek 
and to save that which was lost. Son of Man is a a title that Jesus often used for himself. Uh, The unique thing about Jesus Christ is, is that he was fully man and fully God at the same time. I mean, that's what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? God becomes a man. Uh, the title Son of God emphasizes his divinity. Uh, the title Son of Man emphasizes his humanity. Uh, unlike any other person in, in history, Jesus was both God and man. And, and all of that, of course, is important to fulfilling God's purpose, which Jesus said was to seek and to save that which was lost. So, think about this. What is it that God lost? And and how could God, being absolutely perfect and all-knowing and all-powerful, how could he lose anything in the first place? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. God created man and woman so that he could have a real, personal, loving relationship with these other beings to to accomplish that these beings that he would create would have to have some of the same attributes as god they would have to have the ability to think and to reason and to understand they would also need to be able to feel emotions but more than just feel emotions they would have to be able to empathize that is to connect emotionally with someone else they would also have to have the ability to choose a forced robotic response is not love and it is not a relationship it's it's merely programming so god created beings in his own image meaning with all of those attributes we just talked about and 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 many others and he called them Man, mankind. And then he placed Adam and Eve in paradise with everything they needed, including that dynamic and personal relationship with God. But he also placed in the garden a test for them. Uh, He placed the tree of knowledge of good and evil and told them that the fruit of that tree was forbidden. It was off limits. Because, see, in order to build a genuine relationship with God, they had to choose Him in exclusion to all else. And they would enjoy everlasting life with a wonderful relationship with God if they obeyed Him, but would incur the terrible penalty of death if they sinned. And, and we know the story, unfortunately, through the craftiness of Satan's deceit, they disobeyed God, thus choosing themselves and, and, and their own way over God. And, and the consequence, the penalty of that choice was that their relationship with God was broken. They instantly died spiritually, meaning that they were now separated from God, no relationship with Him. And it also meant that they would eventually die physically. They were lost and the truly sad part of this whole story is the fact that every human being born after them would be born in that lost state the choice was set up 
once for all. And when that choice would be, had been made, it would be passed on to all generations from that. So Jesus, when he said that he came to seek and to save the lost, meant that he was there to seek and save every single person. Right? It, it, it included uh, the common masses who loved and adored Jesus. And it included the Pharisees and religious leaders who despised and opposed and hated him. It was the disciples who followed Jesus and the numerous hordes who never ever really thought about or cared anything about Jesus. It's every person in every generation down through the ages, which means it's me and it's you. All of those were the lost that he came to seek and to save. But how is it that these lost people could then be found and saved? Well, there was only one way. God would have to become a man. And, And here's why. Each person is responsible for their own sin. I'm responsible for mine. You're responsible for yours. Your parents are responsible for theirs. Your kids are responsible for theirs. Everybody is responsible for their own sin and therefore has to pay the penalty for their own sin. And that penalty is death. No man can pay the penalty for another person unless you didn't have a penalty you had to pay yourself. And since we all sin are are born under sin, we have our own penalty to pay. God, however, is not under that penalty because God has no sin. So he could pay it for us. But in order to pay it, he had to become a man because as God, he could not die for us, right? So the purpose, and we'll come back to that thought in a minute. So the purpose of the crucifixion was for God as fully man, to pay the penalty for sin so that mankind could be freed from that penalty. That that was the purpose. That's the because of. He was crucified because of that reason. That brings us back around to that verse in 2 Corinthians. Paul says about Jesus, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness. So, the because of is in this verse is not referring to to the jealousy of the Pharisees, although that was a true reason why Jesus was crucified. It is also not referring to God's ultimate purpose, although, obviously, that was a true reason for Jesus' crucifixion. So what is the because of focusing on in this verse? What's the point? What does he mean? Well, partial answer comes back to the fact of Jesus' humanity. How Do you crucify God who has no physical body and is a spirit being? How can you put to death the all-powerful, immortal, invincible God of the universe? And the answer is you, you can't. In order to die, there must be weakness. And there's no weakness in God. So Jesus became 
weak. That is, he became human so that he could take our place on the cross and die for us. Jesus was crucified because he voluntarily gave up the rights to and the use of his divine nature and became weak. He was crucified because of weakness. But but it's more than just the weakness of human flesh, which can be put to death. It's mortal. Even in his humanity, Jesus could have stopped the whole crucifixion with, with just a word, right? When the mobs came to arrest Jesus... Peter thought he was defending Jesus by whipping out a sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest's slave, okay? And uh, Jesus told him, put the sword away. This isn't how it's going to be. And then he rebuked Peter with this statement. He said, "Do do you think that I cannot appeal to my father who once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Hey, hey, Peter, if you think I need defending better than your sword, uh, swordsmanship, which got the ear of the slave, I could have 12, leg- 12 legions, 72,000 angels, warrior angels protecting him. You know, since the Old Testament tells us that one warrior angel slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, I'm pretty sure 72,000 of them could take care of Jesus in any situation that they would need. But Jesus showed weakness in that he made himself powerless. He could have stopped the whole thing, but he chose not to. You ever wonder how Jesus describes himself? How would he portray himself? We don't have to wonder. The Bible tells us In describing himself, Jesus said, For I am gentle and humble of heart. Gentle and humble of heart people get molested by hardened soldiers. They get abused by mockers and taken advantage of by kangaroo courts. Gentle and humble people are led away to crucifixion even though they have the power to wipe out every opponent. Jesus was crucified because of weakness. Oh, but thank goodness the story doesn't end there. Which is really an amazing statement, isn't it? I mean, the world thinks of death as the end. You know, it's been in the news, of course, recently, famed physicist Stephen Hawking recently passed away, and that was his belief. When you die, that's just the end of everything. He compared the human body to a computer and said that when the components break down, that's it. It's all over. It's done with. Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, but it wasn't all over. See, as 2 Corinthians 13, 4 puts it, For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. Death is no obstacle to God. In fact, it was all part of God's purpose and plan. Jesus would die a death that we deserved to pay the penalty that we owed so that we might be saved. 
He died, but he lives. And next Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to say a whole lot more about that. But for today, we're going to end with just one final point that Paul wanted to make. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. Now, look at this final point. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. We are weak. And yes, we're weak because we all have these frail and broken human bodies which will wear out and break down and are mortal and will get diseased and will come to an end and will die. We're weak because of that flesh, but that's not what this verse is saying. Did you notice that? This verse says that we are weak in Him, in Jesus. Now, that's not something that is preached very often, is it? We, we like to talk about the power we have in Jesus, the, the, uh, all, the, the mercy and the grace, all these good things. And this says we're weak in Jesus, meaning because we belong to Jesus, we're weak. I believe God calls us to be weak in the same way that Jesus was weak, meaning gentle and humble of heart. So does that mean that we might be abused, taken advantage of, run over by the politically correct and the morally bankrupt? Quite possibly. But we have nothing to fear because we live with Him because of the power of God directed at us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that's directed at you. And that right there is the good news of the gospel. We have life because Jesus was crucified because of weakness, but raised because of the power of God. So we can live in weakness so that the power of God can be put on display in our lives. Think of what that means. We live in a culture that tells us to stand up for your rights, to defend yourself, to be strong. Don't get run over by anybody. The Bible flips that upside down. It says you are weak in Him. But you have the power of God in your life. Father God, we're so grateful that the death is not the end. It was not the end for Jesus Christ. It's not the end of, for us. But God, you have an incredible lesson for us in this, that just as Jesus was crucified because of weakness, and it was all part of your plan, you call us to be weak, to not be people who are having to be strong in ourselves, but instead allow the power of God to show your life in us and through us.
So we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. When we share in communion, we celebrate the weakness of Jesus dying for us, but also the power of God to give us life and transform us. It's not just about his death on the cross because his death was not the end. It's about what comes on the other side of the cross.